Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is Dr. Joanna. She's a registered psychotherapist and adjunct professor at uh, Colorado College. And uh, she's also an author. And we're going to talk about her work. So, Joanna, thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, if you would, tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get into, uh, you know, issues of the mind? And then we'll mm-hmm. talk about your current work. My, so it's an interesting question. I think, you know, my background is in, so my doctoral work is in Jungian psychology, which means I study the work of Carl Jung. And it's an interesting kind of question. I'm sure you get this a lot of how people find what they're passionate about. And I found Jung very synchronistically um, at a time in my life where I was kind of looking for the next chapter and wanting to find more meaning. And I was in a library and I actually kind of just was wandering through the bookshelves and stopped very synchronistically in front of this book called On Jung by Anthony Stevens and had never read Jung. My experience in school, I got a degree, my my bachelor's is in social theory. So I hadn't had a lot of ex- training or really exposure to studying the psyche and read this book in like a day and a half. And it felt like this awakening to language that I, in a way of looking at the world that felt so innate to me, but I had never really had the terms and never had the structure to it, but it all, it felt like something I had already thought I had already felt. It was such a massive awakening and click for me that I kind of abruptly applied to Pacifica Graduate Institute where I got my MA and my doctorate um, in, in the schools in Santa Barbara. So it was kind of a leap of faith. And in kind of looking back, I think at my life, I feel grateful for that strange moment in the library, but it is definitely what, what, what happened. What do you mean? 
just this moment of kind of, you know, in, in the Jungian world, we would call it a synchronicity where the kind of inner world matches the outer world. And I was just at a phase of feeling really lost and uncertain in what my path would be or my direction. And I kind of went into the library with that space in my, really in my mind and wandering around and just kind of stopping in front of this book and being like, that's an interesting word. Like literally I had never even heard of Carl Jung and picking this book up and reading it. And then in a lot of ways, like finding, you know, my destiny and so I would say kind of a synchronicity in the sense that the longing in the inner world matches the experience in the outer world. What, what do you mean? Like what, what kinds of experiences or mismatches or matches? What's an example? You know, synchronicities are interesting because they, they kind of challenge the casual connection that we associate the world with. Thinking, what, is, what is a synchronicity? Is that like a coincidence in, the, in certain worlds or what is it? I would say a synchronicity, there is a coincidence, but it's like a, a good way to describe a synchronicity is when, so when what, what you're experiencing in the inner world happens to you in the outer world without it being casually connected. So for example, like another synchronicity that happened to me once in my life was I was, my family was kind of in transition with their business and I was talking to a friend on the phone about what my family owns some land and what we should do the land and that maybe no one in the family was considering what the land wanted to be used for what its next iteration could be and I went downstairs got off the phone went downstairs and I had ordered a book online it was when I was in school and you know books were just floating in through the ether space through my door all the time and I'd order some book and instead of the book that I got the book that I received was called Listening to the Voice of the Land. And okay. it was this by some random author. I don't even know who it was by, but it's like, that's a synchronicity in my mind. What I'm feeling and thinking gets mirrored in the inner outer world without it kind of being a cause, cause and effect in a traditional like Newtonian way, if that makes sense. Uh, not really. I, I mean, the, the, how did your worldview change or, you know, these concepts sound a little bit nebulous. Like what, what are some examples either in your life or other people you've observed that, uh, you know, that, that would make more sense to this for someone that doesn't know like me. Sure. And, and, and maybe, you know, to answer that question, you know, we have to kind of dive a little bit into the work of Jung and this type of psychology I study, because what I'm, what I'm saying in some ways, right, is finding a sense of purpose or meaning that mirrors what is happening to you in your inner world and seeing that in the outer world is what a synchronicity is and so depending on who you are and if you're paying attention to it it can be very confirming and for me in my own journey it was a time in my life where I felt like I was looking for an answer of what's next you know what do I want to make my life meaningfully orbit around and had that kind of handed to me in a way without you know, really researching it or finding it or, you know, calling somebody and it just was there. And so I think, you know, when you start entering the psyche in that way, what makes it unique and what makes Carl Jung's work unique in a lot of the ways we look at the psyche now is that it means basically that it studies the unconscious. And when you are looking at the unconscious, you are essentially tapping into that part of yourself that is unknowable that is not accessed by your ego, that is not something that is, you know, at your fingertips in a way that you are aware of yet, but in some deep level are kind of directs the ship of selfhood anyway. So 
I don't, know, I don't know if you want to talk about yourself or people that you've interacted with, but any major subconscious type elements that cause someone to act in a certain way that you've studied or seen or observed that they weren't aware of, but you were because of your training. I mean, numerous, numerous, numerous. I mean, one of my favorite things that Jung says is um, that if you do not make the unconscious conscious, it'll direct your life and you will call it fate. And the idea behind that is, you know, we are, we are comprised of a conscious center of being, which in the analytical world is called the ego. And so the ego is about all the behaviors, the attitudes, the personality structures, everything that gives you the privilege to say, I, I do this, I feel, I think I am. And in the analytical world, when we talk about the unconscious, we talk about the kind of a nice way to imagine it is you know, staircase, like a staircase or a building or something that has levels because the ego is on the top, right? It's what we already know about ourselves. And the unconscious is kind of a warehouse of all the things that we don't know about ourselves, whether that is something that is repressed in us because perhaps it was traumatic or painful or people repress the best parts of themselves too, right? I don't want to look at my talent, my capacity, um, I don't want to risk exposing who I truly am. And so there is a level of the unconscious that is kind of a, a depository of that personal experience that we, for whatever sake, repress for the sake of the ego ideal and what we imagine ourselves as consciously. And in the Jungian world, on beneath that layer of personal unconscious material is a collective unconscious, which holds archetypal experiences, the place in which our myths, our fairy tales, our collective stories, our religions come from. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. So to ask you know, kind of a zooming away answer to try to get back to your question, you know, what do you experience that people are not aware of in themselves? I mean, it's an enormous amount of stuff, whether you're, you know, say your partner is, you know, full of life, they're exciting, jazzy, fun, the center of attention, and you're, you know, the quiet person, are you drawn to, you are in part drawn to your partner's life force because it is in your unconscious, right? Your own capacity to be the center of it all is in the shadow in, you know, your own unconscious. And so you seek it or, you know, people, it, I mean, the, the, the examples could just go on forever and ever of how people are directed by their unconscious tendencies without really bringing awareness to it. And Typically, the unconscious most often turns out in projected form first. So we, meaning we take the unconscious parts of ourselves, say it's our, you know, our discomfort, and we 
you know, maybe it's our discomfort socially, very common for people. And we project it outward, we put it on somebody. And so say we see somebody that is, has so much ease socially, and we hate them. We're so jealous of them. We're not really jealous of that person. They matter very little. We're jealous of our own capacity to not connect to that fluidity in ourselves. So the unconscious always shows up first in kind of a projected form. And so much of my work and so much of any analytical work is trying to understand your own, you know, the the own ways that the unconscious is moving so that you have a chance at wholeness, that you have a chance at tapping into your personhood in a really full way. I don't know if that makes sense or if I'm explaining that well. Well, is there a therapy component to what you do or is it more of an understanding? And like, what do you do with this? the Jungian understanding of yourself and others? So absolutely. I mean, Jungian psychology is in a lot of ways. So the, the, the kind of march or the history of psychology is, you know, psychology was born out of analytical psychology. So the first kind of modern psychologist is Freud, who Jung and Freud are kind of contemporaries. And there's a, there is a divergence in their work, but, you know, the, the analytical world created therapy as I should say the way that the modern world does therapy. I think there are a lot of therapeutic forms that we don't call psychology, but that way of practicing and understanding the mind really created our, the many, many offshoots that we now, you know, therapy has become a very, very big tent. And the founders of that tent are Ford and Young. And so you know, when you ask, is there a therapeutic component? I mean, most of my work is individual therapy and there is the main, like the main study of the unconscious through the Jungian lens is dream analysis. And so you study the symbols, the messages, the mythologies, this story of the dream as a, as a way to understand kind of the portrait of the inner psyche. And so every character in a dream, every image in a dream, every plot in a dream is considered to be an expression of your inner world directed towards you kind of becoming more of yourself, coming more actualized, what the unions called individuation, the process of kind of becoming your unique self. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And so a lot of the therapeutic practice is helping people access their inner world, challenging them in a lot of ways, deepening them, looking for the root systems, the the deeper stories to why do you act a certain way? Why do you feel a certain way? I mean, I think a good way to describe analytical or Jungian therapy is a table. A lot of therapies that we work with now are concerned with what is on top of the table, moving different pieces around, seeing how they relate to each other. The anything, a a discipline that studies the unconscious is concerned about reaching underneath the table and pulling whatever parts of yourself, whether it's your traumas, your, you know, your uniqueness, your, you know, things that you repress to fit in at school, things you repress to fit in your family systems, the many, many, many facets in which parts of ourselves that get lost rest in and trying to pull those pieces back up onto the table so that we can understand more of ourselves. And so the therapeutic process, I mean, naturally it's talk therapy. It takes a long time. It's not fix oriented, which is distinct from a lot of therapies that we practice nowadays where 
the psyche has kind of become a mechanical issue that we're trying to solve and remove our symptoms and get rid of our pain and overcome this and that. The, you know, the type of therapy that I practice is much more focused on there being meaning in those things. You know, anxiety has a story. Depression is a message. You know, panic has has deeper roots to it. And so kind of unraveling and unspooling those things in a deeper way, rather than trying to train your ego to think about them differently. You do this in a clinic setting or you do this through books or how do you accomplish informing people and, and helping them? I have a private practice, so I'm, which is the clinical setting. So that's one of the ways that I work individually with my clients. Obviously I do some teaching, which is fun to do um, with younger people and just kind of helping them explore different ideas and helping them see the psyche in a different way. And as you mentioned to your listeners, I have a book coming out, which is, which is Jungian in orientation, but not kind of specifically a guide towards kind of understanding the Jungian psyche. It's directed towards something a little bit different, but I think individually, I mean, the most potent thing that I do at this point is just my individual work with my clients. Is there anything that, I don't know if you feel like this is egotistical, but what have you been able to add your own flavor to Jungian psychology or nuance to it? And if so, what is that? That's a great question. I think that one of the things that I'm passionate about that is a little unique in my field is, you know, the Jungian community has, there is kind of a, there is an under, you know, when you, when you work with the inner world in a deep way, as the analytical community does, there's definitely an attitude that deeper work is for the second half of life in the sense that the the younger psyche is about the external world, right? The questions are about who am I outside of myself? What do I do? Who am I married to? How am I impacting the external world? In the second half of life, that psychic energy kind of switches and you start getting reflection and in a, in a different way, right? The, the psychic energy goes from being out into the external to kind of being thrown back into the internal world, which of course is kind of the joke around midlife crises, right? As people get kind of energetically thrown back into their inner world, they've spent an entire lifetime in the external and are not familiar or don't like what they see. And so in the Jungian community, there's kind of an attitude that this type of like deeper inner work is for the second half of life, which as a young professional, I could not disagree with more. I think I really, I love working with younger people. When I mean younger people, you know, probably people in their like twenties and thirties, partly because it's so rich to help people discover who they are. And I don't, I, and sometimes I feel a sadness with my older clients because they're at the place in their life where they're looking back and they're like, what happened to me? And if we could start deeper work on ourselves earlier and start understanding the growth of self and the importance of finding your your unique meaning in life and what's holding you back or really what's really going on. You have a partnership, a job, you know, depression, anxiety, like finding the deeper, deeper stories and roots of that early set life up for a really meaningful, in my opinion, you know, opportunity. And so I think I'm different in that sense, probably because I am younger for the Jungian community. And I wouldn't necessarily say that's like a unique contribution, but it is different. I'm trying to think if there's another thing that I well, what, go ahead. It's probably easier to look at clients you've worked with. So 
this midlife crisis or this, you know, change from external focus to internal focus. I mean, I, I guess it doesn't sit well with a lot of people. What happens? Let's talk about that specifically. Like, what have you observed, you know, either happen with yourself or other people? And what do, why do they have difficulties with this worldview change? I think in part, it's because, you know, we in our culture tend to project and associate ourselves with the external world really profoundly. So it's like, I am my job. There's a projection of your own selfhood that gets put on the job, on your job, or how, you know, how much money you make, what car you drive, how big your house is, how many things you have. I mean, we're such a materialistic and externalized culture that I think when, you know, so much of our deeper ways into connecting to the inner world have been lost, you know, we're not a religious culture in a deeply symbolic way. We're not so much of our, you know, religious symbolisms or the messages of, you know, myth or ritual have kind of been lost to the modern mind. And because of that, we're so externalized. And I think when that energy shifts back in and we lose the capacity kind of psychologically to hold on to those external projections, like you lose your job and suddenly you're not rooted in a deeper sense of who you are being you know, kind of autonomous in some ways from what you do on the outside, there's an immense rattling that happens for people. And, you know, that shows up in so many different ways, like people trying to, you know, you've got the classic, like people buying cars or going on trips or buying houses or leaving their partners, people that kind of try to reconfigure the outer world because suddenly it's lost its meaning and they're afraid to sit in with what has kind of been brewing for however long in the unconscious. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways on a collective level, COVID is a really interesting experience of this. And I really saw this in my practice with people kind of having so much of the external world taken away in the ways that they're used to and being thus forced into a relationship with themselves in a different way where they couldn't, you know, go to their yoga class or, you know, go to their office place or go see their friends or do all the things that aren't bad by any means. But in the external world, we've become pretty imbalanced in that. And I think COVID kind of threw people into the inner world and a lot of people didn't like what they saw and weren't comfortable with what they saw or what they encountered in themselves. And well, what, do you, what do you mean? Like what's, what are some examples of, um, you know, keeping the people anonymous? Sure. There are some examples of surprising things you saw that the ways in which they viewed themselves or what happened to them mentally. I mean, I'm thinking like I can think of a couple people, you know, where, you know, changes in their job and changes in how they related to themselves through work, like with that taken away, it was like, well, do I like my job? Is it meaningful for me? you know, realizing, well, what I really liked was like going to the office and feeling like I was the smartest person there or going to the office and feeling, you know, X, Y, and Z and kind of this encounter with really feeling that their life was actually not connected to a deeper source of meaning for them and in really personhood. You know, I think it showed up with people, you know, really losing a I mean, a lot of anxiety, a lot of panic, a lot of depression, a lot of kind of realizing that their sources of meaning and sources of selfhood had shifted. And, you know, I 
I saw, I mean, I think most people experience this probably on some level in any relationship that they were having, especially if it was like a close partnership that they were in quarantine with or whatever it was. A lot of people, you know, like wanting to leave partners, putting an enormous amount of that inner world and that discomfort on their partners, you know, that like they're to this, they're to that. Um, I saw like a lot of breakups, a lot of conflict, whether that relationship you know, needed to kind of change anyway or not. Um, I think a lot of people really tried to offload their unconscious onto their partners and got it thrown in their face. It's, it's an interesting question to kind of think about, you know, when, and I guess maybe this is a question maybe even for you, but I think it's like when we talk about the inner world, if people do not really understand what that is, it's kind of a hard thing to put your finger on of like a relationship to your deep self and a relationship with your unconscious in some level, whether that is the parts of yourself that aren't fully known to you, parts of yourself you're ashamed of, parts of yourself you don't want to admit. Um, It's a hard way to, I think, instinctively put your finger on or to really know what it is unless you have, you know, in a lot of ways therapy, right? Unless you have a guide that's helping you see these parts of yourself. I don't know, like in reviewing Jungian psychology and learning about it, like, you know, you don't have to give it any way any personal details, but do you think of yourself as multiple selves or do you Mm -hmm. say, okay, uh, let me look inside myself and see what I really think or I really feel like, do you relate to you? Like, how has it changed how you think and how you relate to yourself? I guess That's a really rich question. And I would say it's kind of a yes. And I, the, the Jungian world would argue that there is what Jung would call a self with a capital S. So the deeper core of who you are, a center of who you are. And, you know, in the sense of kind of like an acorn will grow into an oak tree, the Jungian psyche has telos, meaning it's directed by a final purpose. There's a form that is believed to exist. So whoever you are uniquely, whatever your passions are, whatever your, you know, kind of like unique print is, is the goal, right? To kind of tap into that, to be fueled by that, to have a sense of your deep selfhood means to kind of know, know a little bit of the self in you. But I would also say on the other side of that, that there are many different pieces in the psyche. And I think this is a huge problem in a lot of ways in our psychology is that we, our world is really dualistic. We like to divide things into two. We like, you know, we like good, evil, black, white, you know, hot, cold. We like things. I mean, we come from Cartesian dualism. We, we have divided our world and, and we like to kind of collapse the psyche. So we want to be like good or bad. We want this to be either fixed or broken. And a lot of what I do with my clients and a lot of what I think the Jungian world and the analytical world is rich in is encouraging people to kind of hold the many fragments of themselves together that you can feel both in yourself you know, competent and strong and capable and also have a part of you that feels weak and idiotic and unsure. And that those two things, if you can hold them together, if you can hold the many, many different parts of yourself without kind of collapsing the tension between the two and two and choosing a side, right? I'm not, if I, if I collapse the tension and I go to the kind of incompetent side of myself, then I lose access to the side of myself that feels you know, her fullness and capacity and competency. And so a lot of what 
I know, I think I do with my clients is encourage them to hold the tension of these opposing sides of themselves so that a relationship can happen. And I think for people, it's very innate and actually very intuitive to say, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Like, I know that there are multiple parts of myself. You know, there's a part of me that, you know, loves what I do. And there's a part of me that's exhausted and tired and wants to go on vacation all the time. You know, it's like, there's a part of me that loves my family. There's a part of me that feels restricted by my family. There's a part of me that, you know, we have a lot going on in the inner world. And so much of studying the unconscious is looking at that kind of plethora and, and cornucopia of things that are really dynamic in us and allowing each of them to have a seat at the table. And it can be really hard and very rattling to, you know, have a part of you that say, for example, you have a, you know, have grown up feeling worthless, say your parents said you were stupid, say, you know, or not good enough, or you were shamed in school that you are, you will repress the part of you that is competent, that is, feels whole, that feels like you're worthy because life has shown you, right. That's not possible. That doesn't exist. You will seek proof of that, right. Over and over again, you notice the things like, these are the glasses you're wearing, right. I notice that I'm not good enough, that I'm not smart enough. People walk away from me. Maybe they have to go to the bathroom, but you'll still see them as walking away because you're not enough, right. You start seeing life that way. And so it becomes so important to include the other side that says, well, maybe you are worthy. Maybe, you know, there is something in you that can be meaningfully offered or alive or awakened. And that's so much of the study of the unconscious is going into that complexity, finding the other part so that you can bring it back to the dinner table and hold the part of you that says, yes, you're garbage. And the part of you that's like, no, you're, this is, you are a treasure, right? There's something really valuable and unique in you and learning to kind of rattle in those discomforts is very um, central to kind of understanding the diversity of the psyche really, because we, we do have polarizations in ourselves, but we can't, we risk a lot if we don't hold a tension between the many parts of ourselves, because then we get single-minded and well, what is what has this done for you? Like, let's say you're in a situation, you're interacting with someone you know, mm-hmm. and they do something that annoys the shit out of you. Pre Jungian you versus post Jungian you. Do you react differently? Do you mm-hmm. take a moment to process? Like, like how have your relationships changed based on your new understanding of of all the psychology and working with people? I think absolutely it has changed enormously. I think the number one thing is that it has taught me to start with myself first. And so, you know, if I dislike someone, not, I mean, people there it's, and maybe there's a a distinction to be made here between like somebody who's annoying people can be annoying. I mean, that happens like in somebody that like kind of triggers you where there's a charge, you know, where someone's like, yeah, that person's too loud. And meanwhile, you know, like you're chewing off your arms, so you can throw it at them. Like that's a different energy. And I think one of the things that I have, I feel like this psychology is a real gift to is really trying to slow down and understand like if I want to chew my arm off to throw it at somebody, that means that that person has a part of me in them. So let me think, like, I'll give you a personal example. Wait, wait, um, what do you mean? You mean like if, if someone makes you mad, then they have power? Is that what you mean? Or what do you mean a part of you is? I would say that 
it means that like an unconscious part of you is in that person. So I'll, I'll explain it with an example. Like I have a person in my life that is a real trigger for me. They're really hard. They're, I would call them a shadow figure, um, meaning there's a lot of my own unconscious material kind of gets projected onto this person. And this person is very, very, very confident. Like will tell you immediately what they know about everything. And, you know, if you're, if you're an electrician, they've definitely are not an electrician. They'll tell you like all, all about being an electrician. And, you know, it, you, you know, I'm sure if you talk to them, they'd tell you all about how to, you know, host a podcast, even though they've never done it, which of course is an annoying habit, but it's like consuming for me. And in my analytical work, one of the things I've come to understand is it's so hard for me because part of my journey is is feeling like what I do is enough and having the confidence to kind of share and talk about what I value. And of course, maybe that doesn't come across, but it's a journey for me, right? And so seeing this person's confidence, they're kind of like unabashed, blatant confidence to say what they know, no matter what. It's like that confidence is really unconscious for me. And so my ego sees that and part of me longs for it, right? I'm like, I want that. But because it's not a part of my personality structure, it drives me crazy. And I'm like, I hate that person. But really what I want, right, is I want their freedom. I want their capacity to just blatantly be like, this is who I am. No checks, no boundaries, take it or leave it. Like that's really, really hard for me. And so when I see that in the outer world, I get triggered by it. And I think, yeah, but um, if someone's acting as like what I've noticed, I don't know if this is universal. When someone's a jerk, a lot of times it's because they're unhappy with themselves. And I've seen it with a few people, like when their situation improved and they were happier, they weren't such a jerk, you know? So maybe this overconfidence thing, just as an example, I don't know, pulling this out of my, you know what? Maybe it's, it's hiding or masking some like insecurity or other problem. So like, it seems like you're saying accept people a hundred percent for what they are, but I don't know. I guess, yeah, it's weird. Like, how do you navigate that? If, if you know or feel that someone has some restriction in them or they're suffering or whatever it is, and that's why they're acting that way, possibly, what do you do? Do you show empathy and move on? Do you tell them and confront them? Like, what, what would you do? It's, it's an interesting question. I think, you know, to kind of start to weave the two questions together, you know, I think one of the things this way of thinking gives you is, is the opportunity to try to get curious about where you show up in relationships and in people. So there is, there is always a lesson to be had. That being said, I agree with you. Like people, people do different things with their suffering you know, some people inflate themselves and walk around and make everyone feel bad because if they feel great, then no one's going to ever attack that wounded part of themselves. You know, I think there are so many different ways to do that. I think being a therapist innately shows you the complexity and the, the complexity, the depth and the pervasiveness of of people's pain and people's suffering. And I think it does make you more compassionate or empathetic where you can say, you can say, you know, this person's being a jerk and who knows what their story is. I mean, my clients, they, you know, constantly surprise me with how they see themselves, how they view the world, what part of themselves is, you know, actually at play in a, in a situation. And I think at the same time, right, you can endlessly create space for people's own journeys. And there are always boundaries that need to be held in any, you know, social interaction. Like there's no need to, you could be suffering and you still don't need to be cruel to someone 
or, you know, you can be suffering, but you don't have to, you know, you can feel really insecure in yourself and, you know, you don't have to make a room feel like everyone else in the room is garbage. And I would really say in honesty, the person that is in that role is unconscious, right? They're taking that, that desire to feel good about themselves and pulling the room down around them because they're not aware that that's actually what's happening to them, that it's their insecurity or their shame that is making them behave in a certain way. And so, you know, one of the things I love to say to my clients, if I ever had like a little mantra or a blurb or whatever they call them is consciousness is the cure. And it's not necessarily that we get the privilege of changing our behavior all the time or the privilege of endlessly being compassionate or empathetic or whatever it is, but we bring awareness. You know, it's like, wow, is that person behaving in that way because they feel so small, so insecure, so broken? And that doesn't necessarily excuse that behavior, but, you know, it can help you connect like, wow, where do I feel broken, small, insecure? Where has that showed up in my life? I think looking at the psyche in this way invites you to be curious about where you participate in basically everything that's happening to you, which does occur. So you're saying learn from the people you you hate or that annoy the heck out of you? Is there something to be learned about your own psyche from them? Yes, absolutely. I would say, you know, people that annoy you, people that challenge you, they are teachers. Annoying and challenging teachers, but yeah. Absolutely. I, I mean, they're, but they're wonderful. This is why I tell what I, one of the things I say a lot to my clients and I definitely have experienced this is they're incredible meters for yourself. Like for example, this person who I was talking about earlier, who's a major trigger for me when I, as I have stepped more into what I want to do in my life, you know, like finishing my doctoral work, filling my practice, um, you know, having my book published, the more that I have allowed my voice and what I'm passionate about to feel meaningful for me, the less that person annoys me. And because I'm not thirsting in the same way for that kind of capacity to put yourself out there in the world that this person is so exuberant in. And so they're really interesting kind of barometers I think a good shadow figure is not only a teacher, but part of that teaching is that they are good barometers for where you are in your own journey. I mean, at some point, right, that person just starts being, you're like, that's annoying and it's rude. And you shouldn't just say, you know, something about something you don't, but it doesn't like, but I'm not chewing my arm off anymore. Well, what what does that mean? You're not chewing your arm off anymore. Does that mean you're just bristling with anger inside or frustration? And yeah. Just so what are you doing now? Are you, are you telling the person what's going on or are you, mm. you're just changing your mental state and saying, all right, what can I learn from this person? And does that make the anger go away? In my experience, it makes the anger go away. I think when you take back an understanding of, you know, why is this person annoying to me? You understand that unconscious pull it's, it deflates it because the unconscious wants life, right? It wants consciousness. And so when you think, okay, well, I'm, I'm actually upset with this person because I see a bit of myself in them and it's a part of myself I don't like then, or I, or I want, or, you know, I'm ashamed of whatever it is, right. It, it, it takes the power from that person in a lot of ways to, to understand. And I think there's a, there's kind of an automatic psychic relief that happens around, okay, this is what's really going on here. And the anger is the pull towards that energy, towards that that lesson or that opportunity to see yourself in a different way. 
So, I mean, on the whole, like, how much do you feel like understanding Jungian psychology has helped you navigate life and feel better? I mean, I enormously, I, I mean, I think understanding the unconscious parts of yourself gives you more authority and control over yourself. And it gives you, and it also gives an enormous amount of meaning to kind of feel, you know, so much of what Jung's work is about is kind of finding an inner purpose and reconnecting to the deeper parts of ourselves that are more symbolic, that are more, um, that speak in images, that speak, that are more felt, that, that aren't as kind of sterile and rational and narrow as the ego can become. And, you know, it's not a mistake that we as a society, you know, kind of left traditional and more primitive ways of living kind of, you know, pre-industrial revolution left nature, left um, traditional religious structures and moved into cities, got busy, got fast, you know, disconnected from so many of the traditional ways into the inner world and created psychology and called ourselves sick and then went about fixing the modern mind. You know, that happened because we've lost a route into, you know, the, the deeper, more imagistic, more archetypal parts of ourselves. And I think in a lot of ways, what is so meaningful to me and to a lot of people about Jungian work is that it's a return to that, you know, the dynamisms of the inner world, to the parts of yourself that have, you know, a sense of really being rooted in something deeper and something more authentic to yourself. And if you can tap into that, it's like the roots go really deep. And then the tree of life that blows and all the winds that we all experience, it, it doesn't bend over as easy. So I should have asked you this way earlier, but for if someone's depressed or anxious, they have PTSD, what happens to this contemplation of the inner self and what happens to the messages that come maybe from your subconscious? Does it get all warped and twisted or what do you observe? I mean, it's a really interesting question and, and I, and I would, and, and it would be very different for everybody. I mean, I think the, my experience specifically of people that have a lot of trauma is that the inner world becomes incredibly dark. And because what's happening, right, is it's like, think of trauma as a circuit breaker. It's like something so fast, so overwhelming, so consuming happens to the psyche that in order to create stability, the unconscious splits itself. It's like the circuit blows, right? Too much information is coming in too fast. And so what happens is that the the kind of the the candle of who we deeply are, our authenticity gets kind of protected in the psyche. So a system, a defense system around it is created because if that part of the psyche is lost, it can't be, it, it like, it can't be lost, right? So we dissociate, we split and the unconscious locks that part of ourselves away and creates in its stead an enormous defense system so that the psyche will never experience again the pain that caused the original break. And so a good way to kind of image that is, so something gets locked behind a castle wall, right? And the psyche wakes up an entire army to stand on that castle wall and look out vigilantly for anything that may cause a reminder of that original pain. And over time, that system in the psyche that is built around protection becomes about persecution because that defense system sees a raging bonfire and a burnt piece of toast as the same energy and causes, 
you know, that alarm and that flight or flight that people with PTSD or heavy trauma get sucked into constantly. They're vigilantly looking for when is the next, you know, suffering going to happen? When is this going to happen again? And so the psyche gets built upon this enormous defense system, which is of course about protecting our deeper personhood that can't be threatened and how that manifests for different people. I mean, it ranges in so many different ways. Like most people that experience extreme trauma have a sense of, you know, losing connection to that selfhood. So they don't have a deep sense of who they are. They feel disgusting in themselves. They feel shame in themselves because something they have done has caused it, whatever it is for a specific person, that inner world becomes incredibly hostile towards the person because it's kind of enacting the pain of that it's enacting, but there's not access to that deep personhood, that deep sense of who we are, because it's so it's been locked away because of the pain. And so I think a lot of work with trauma is, of course, there is a huge neurobiological and somatic side to it. And on kind of an unconscious symbolic side is kind of working through this defense system to get to that inner self. And so how, I mean, it's a hard question to ask of kind of like, what do I experience and what happens in the inner world? But I think, because it's so unique for different people, right? Everyone has different images of it. Everyone has different dreams of their own pain. But I think that which is repressed typically becomes incredibly hostile. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to talk about that dynamic there too. We're almost out of time. So where can people find out more about your work? And if they want to get in touch or read your works, where do they go? So my my first book is coming out in May. Um, you can pre-order it now at the Penguin Random House site. I think it's on Amazon. I think if you go to Penguin, it like links to all the places that it's available. Um, So that book is called Forged in Darkness. And very, very briefly, it's about, it comes from my own. So Forged in Darkness is about the underworld journey and the mythic underworld journey, obviously, as a metaphor for kind of exploring the, whether it's the parts of ourselves that we don't access or know or really just darkness and suffering in general. And it comes from a place of really noticing that in our culture, we we approach hardship with so much shame. We approach it with sword in hand, trying to fix it, beat it, subdue it, quickly pull anything dark in us as fast as we can to the nearest and closest patch of sunlight and stay there as long as possible. And we've become so narrow in our understanding of the underworld. And because of that, we are losing such an immense source of our own capacity making. I mean, I have yet to experience a single person in my life or my practice that transforms into a greater individual in sunlight. It doesn't happen. It's like, we need, we need darkness. We need suffering. We need these, whether it's our anxieties or discomforts or our panics or the terrible things that happen in life. And so the book is really an offering and an attempt to reimagine our relationship with the many forms of darkness that happen throughout a life. And I use mythology. So I talk about the mythic underworld journeys of various heroes and gods as kind of metaphors for different styles of consciousness, meaning different attitudes and behaviors that could show us more ways of moving through hardship than this dominant myth that we operate under, which is really, you know, the Herculean story of beat everything, 
into submission, subdue everything, become a victor, don't be affected by hardship. And so that book, you know, in my own way is an attempt to kind of encourage people that, you know, hard things in life happen and pain happens and you can move through that in a lot of different ways. And if you can tap into the ways in which is meaningful for you, you have a chance at really growing. So that's my kind of first major contribution, potentially last writing a book is is something that's taken me a long time. So that book comes out in May. Like I said, um, it's being published by Watkins, which is a, is um, Penguin House's Brit. It's they're based in London. Um, Their kind of psychology and self-help division is called Watkins. And so my, so you can find the book there. Um, My, my practice is called Ion Psychotherapy. I'm not sure maybe you have a link to it if they want to, my website has a lot. Yeah, we'll post a link. Yeah, a lot more about the book. I'm currently not accepting any clients, but, you know, practices ebb and flow. So if anyone is interested in that, you know, you can always reach out to me, which my contact information is on my website. So. Well, very good. Well, Joanna, thank you for coming and for your explanations. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.